Good morning, Mission Fellowship. As we purposefully enter into the Lord's presence this morning, I find that I have, like you, many different thoughts and emotions flooding my mind and heart. Yesterday, I found myself heartbroken at the state of our world. Over 102,000 image bearers of God in just our country alone have died of COVID-19. This week, we all witnessed the horrific killing of a handcuffed man, an image bearer of God, while begging for breath under the knees of three police officers. This then resulted in needless violence that turned valid mourning and outrage into destructive riots putting many in harm's way. And those in harm's way included the many sacrificial police officers that bear no resemblance to those that use their badge for abuse or harm. And then there are voices of anger and vitriol from so many different angles, fueling all the various fires. And so before we begin today, I want to ask you to join me in taking a moment of silence to quietly call out to God and express our need for his spirit at work in our world. And as we do so, let's take a moment to mourn for the thousands lost to coronavirus, to mourn for our nation to mourn the oppression experienced daily by so many minority groups simply because of their outward appearance, to mourn for the family of George Floyd, to mourn for those that serve us and protect us and yet are being slandered because they wear a uniform. So let's take a moment and cry out to God. This morning we seek guidance from the Lord, as that is a sure foundation on which we can stand. This morning we'll first hear from Samantha Cavalli as she reads Psalm 75, and then we will hear 1 Peter 5, 1-11, read by Ryan Johnson. Prayers will be given by Tyler Robison and Patrick Schneider, and worship will be led by Seth and Danielle Spangle and Vic Hess on Cajon. This morning as we worship in the fellowship of the Spirit, let's humble ourselves as we approach the throne of God to hear from his word and be impressed upon by his Spirit. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth potters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. A reading 
from 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you created the heavens and the earth by your word, and you filled the earth with good creation. It was good when you created it, and we are thankful that we see that goodness in your creation even today. We thank you for the sun and the rain that makes things grow. We thank you for all of your creatures that fill the earth and keep it in balance. We see your wisdom in the natural laws and order of the universe, and we are privileged that you have revealed some of that law to us. But Lord, we come before you this morning acknowledging that it was us who have tarnished your good creation by choosing rebellion to you and your kingdom. We confess that we have knowingly and willingly spread the virus of evil, sin, and death by turning our backs on you and making ourselves lords of our own little kingdoms. We are sorry, Jesus, for how we have treated people that look different from us. We see the injustice suffered by our black brothers and sisters in this country, and we repent for any role that we have played in the systemic oppression of people who are your image bearers. Give us ears to hear from the black community how we can show the love of Jesus in this moment. We repent for the way we, that we pervert justice and make it about us and not about you, Jesus. For those protesting and even rioting in the name of justice and equality, remind them that you are the only one who is truly just. Comfort them, Lord. Give them hope for an eternity spent in unity with you and your people. For those law enforcement officers whose job has been made increasingly difficult due to the current circumstances, give them compassion to see the people they serve as people created in your image, Lord. Give them grace to wield their authority in ways that build trust in their communities and protect them physically as they serve the people around them. We are reminded, Jesus, that you are not surprised when chaos besets this world. 
May we cast our anxieties, our fear, our despair at your feet and lift our eyes to you. You are our only hope, Jesus. For our healthcare workers, Teresa, Esther, Wendy, Ashley, Tori, Sarah, James, Matthew, and anyone else working to keep our community healthy, we pray for peace and for safety for them. We pray for endurance as well. Give them encouragement this week as they go through the motions of work. And for the families and individuals affected by the ever-increasing numbers of deaths caused by COVID-19, we pray that you would send your peace to them. Our world is broken and has been from the moment we chose ourselves over relationship with you, God. That has become increasingly obvious over these past weeks. We praise you and give you thanks that you have not left us in this broken world without hope. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you walked as our sacrificial and suffering servant so that we could be exalted with you as our reigning and eternal king. As we take in your word today, give us ears to hear and hearts that are softened. May the Spirit produce good fruit from the word our brother Hans has to share with us. And may the posture of our hearts bring you joy as we work to spread the righteousness and justice of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Years ago, in what I remember is one of the first times someone had taught me about public speaking and debate, I was given a wonderful piece of wisdom. My mentor at the time helped me to understand that if you want someone to listen, the key is to speak softly and to choose your words carefully. It's the natural tendency of most people in our world to speak louder and more prominently so that they can be heard. We innately think that we are more likely to be heard if we scream louder and are more abrasive in our speech. And this, dear friends, is a microcosm of the system of this world. Survival of the fittest, the strongest, the loudest, the angriest, the most abrasive is the governing law of the land. And we would be lying to ourselves if we believed this was a new problem. The internet has just made it more visible and pervasive. All we need to do is look back at our human history and we quickly see that the group with more resources, better technology, more opportunity, quickly enslaves, oppresses, and villainizes those outside of their group. There's always an attempt to be better than the other, to speak louder than the other, to have a stronger voice than the other. Always a desire in humanity to be on the top of the heap, if you will. The public discourse or should I say Twitter screaming match that exists around the horrific and unjust killing of George Floyd and all that it stands for in the minds of various ideological groups is the latest event in a long human history of one being made in the image of God oppressing another being made in the image of God. The lie of our own merit, our own entitlement that we looked at last week, leads us to believe that we individually are better than every other individual that's made in the image of God. In one way or another, we all have it deeply seated in our soul that we want to be the one in power. It's part and parcel to our original sin. As we will see in our study today, this incessant need to be in power, to be raised higher than our peers, has been with mankind since the very beginning. And this is why, dear church, 
the only solution to all that plagues mankind, is the full reign of Christ over all creation and in each and every heart of those meant to bear his image. Over the last few chapters of Mark, detailing Jesus' teaching on what it is to be his disciple, we have seen Mark's emphasis on servanthood, humility, and merciful care for the other. If these truths are fully taken in and applied by we who call ourselves disciples, then Christ's kingdom would indeed begin to make a dent in the hatred that permeates our society. But as we will see today, so many of us who call ourselves disciples, even as Jesus' own apostles did, are blinded by our own pursuit of self-adoration. It is my hope this morning for our hearts to be drastically changed and convicted that if we want to proclaim that we are disciples of Christ, then we must recognize that we follow a sacrificial sovereign and true disciples of Jesus will follow in that same humble, sacrificial nature. Today we are looking at the last portion of this section in Mark dealing with discipleship. I've titled it, Disciples of the Sacrificial Sovereign. Disciples of the Sacrificial Sovereign. Let's read this morning, beginning with a portion we briefly looked at last week. Please read with me in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. It says, And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. In this first section this morning, we see that, and you can write this down, Christ's kingdom is founded upon love, empowered by sovereign sacrifice. Christ's kingdom is founded upon love, empowered by sovereign sacrifice. Last week we saw that Mark seems to be emphasizing Jesus walking on the way to Jerusalem, a man on a mission. And those following him were both amazed and afraid at what lie ahead. But Jesus is there leading them as a king, setting his face like flint towards the cross. And seeing the emotion behind the faces of his disciples, he pulls them aside to prepare them for what lies ahead. Now this is the third description of the redemptive activity of Jesus that we find spread throughout this section on discipleship. By now we should be getting the point that at the heart of discipleship, is the fact that we are saved by the sacrificial work of Jesus. Not to then live the life of our own purposes, but for his purposes. We are called to a life that in some way, shape, or form mimics his sacrificial nature. In this account, it is interesting that Jesus decides to go into more detail than in the previous two. This detail paints a vivid picture for us of the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus previewed in Mark 1.15, saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. There are two distinct pieces that collectively make up the full, beautiful picture of Jesus' atoning work. 
First, we see the pieces of Jesus' death and resurrection that we as Christians treasure deeply. There are two statements of Jesus being delivered over. The second one at the end of verse 33 is where he's delivered by the Jewish leaders to the Gentiles. But in the first part of verse 33, it also says he was delivered over. I find this interesting because, as we will see in a few chapters, it is Judas who is the one who betrays him, but it seems to be more than that here. It seems to be the divine hand of the Father and really the triune God that hands Jesus over to become the sacrifice. At the hands of the Romans, with the consent of the Jewish leaders, Jesus was then mocked. A crown of thorns was placed on his head and a crimson robe placed on his whipped, flogged back. The centurions put in charge of his torture seemed to glory at the possibility of harming and dehumanizing this simple Jewish rabbi. He was then pinned upon a cross with nails through his hands and his feet, caused to suffocate to death in excruciating pain. And to see if he was dead, a spear was put through his side. He was killed, murdered at the hands of the humanity he created and came to save. In this detail that we are given, we have the core of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ that brings oneness with God. It brings atonement. Jesus suffered and died in your place and mine. But what makes this sacrifice even more awe-inspiring is because of the reference Jesus makes to the Son of Man. As we have covered multiple times in Mark, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself in this gospel, and it takes our minds back to Daniel chapter 7 and the fact that the Ancient of Days, a title for God the Father, gives his dominion over into the hands of the one known as the Son of Man. This is from Daniel seven thirteen through 14. I'll simply remind you of it. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." By referencing himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is very clearly telling his disciples that he is indeed the sovereign king of the universe, and yet, even though he has the power to call down legions of angels, he is willingly sacrificing himself into the hands of those that will kill him. The king dying for the citizens of the kingdom is an amazing thing. Three days later, that king will rise. And Jesus resurrected to show not only that he conquered death in the kingdom of darkness, but also because in rising, we see that he is the all-powerful king. Nothing can hold him. He has indeed been enthroned by the ancient of days. It was in this moment that the kingdom of God was created and founded, and the king was put in place on the throne, and those who were to be his citizens could begin entrance into his reign. Why on earth would God do this gracious and merciful act. Why would he sacrifice so much? Well, you guys know the answer well. The answer is love. As John 3.16 puts it, this is the Christian standard version, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In Christ's kingdom, power is shown not through abuse 
and harm and aggressiveness, but through sacrifice and selflessness. Not meaningless, insignificant sacrifice, but the greatest sacrifice possible. The king giving his life for his enemies. Christ's kingdom is founded upon love, empowered by sovereign sacrifice. It is no mistake, then, that Mark places the next section of the text after this statement. He does so to show us how deeply flawed we are as humanity and how quickly we can be blinded to the truth of the foundation of that kingdom. You and I are no different than the disciples. This next section shows us that, and you can write this down if you'd like, humanity instead desires the shameless sin of self-promotion. Humanity instead desires the shameless sin of self-promotion. Let's read our next section in Mark from chapter 10, verses 35 through 41. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. In Christendom, we often looked at the apostles as the all-star team of holiness. In reality, though, the gospel authors use them to show us how far from the mind of God we really are as humanity. And this isn't surprising, is it? All we have to do is go back to the beginning of the story of mankind. Immediately after the narrative of the fall in the garden, the author of Genesis gives us a view into our human soul. First, we have the story of the brothers Cain and Abel. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Verses 1 through 12. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. It says there, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, 
It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, commentators over the centuries have given numerous reasons why the offering of Cain was not accepted. But that is not explicitly mentioned for a reason. I believe it it doesn't matter. It was, in fact, that God, in his sovereign decision, chose to have regard for Abel and not for Cain. The fact that another was chosen drove Cain to the point of hatred and murderous rage. God even intervenes to let him know that if he doesn't master his rage, it will overpower him, but to no avail. Cain then kills his brother, and notice the wording. It says, he rose up against his brother and killed him. He rose up above his brother and killed him. The statement of value. And what was his response to God's question about where Abel was? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, it's not my problem. Already we see the self-centeredness of mankind taking hold, raising ourselves above one another. Genesis so succinctly captures the self-centered heart of all mankind here. Power, anger, oppression, and even elimination is the solution that we automatically come to when our self-promotion is stunted or our ego is bruised. And when told that we are created to not be islands unto ourselves, but part of a common unity of humanity, and that our actions affect others, we often shrug like Cain and say, Am I my brother's keeper? It's not my problem. It wasn't a long fall then to get from Cain to the next story, that of his descendant Lamech. Look at Genesis 4.23. This character, Lamech, is the first that decides he can break the created nature of exclusive monogamy between a husband and wife, and he takes on two wives. And then look at what he says in verse 23 of chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's. If 77-fold. Notice the arrogance, self-justified anger and violence, and the entitlement. Lamech says, he wounded me, so I killed him. Nobody is going to mess with me, only the strong survive. This is the underlying law of the land in our human minds. We're so ingrained in it that we don't even notice it. James and John, back in Mark 10, come to Jesus with this same law of the land in mind. You see, they believed, rightly so, that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed he would be the one to sit on the throne of David. But they misunderstood the cosmic and heavenly implications of what it was to be the Son of Man. They thought Jesus would be an earthly king with an earthly rule, so they come to him with a request. And notice right off the bat, their arrogance and entitlement. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It was as if they thought they deserved the place of authority and glory. But Jesus says to them, responding not in their own worldview, but in his own, you do not know what you are asking. It's almost written as if Jesus is confused, though. In one line, he says, you don't know what you're asking. And then a second later, he says, you will take these on. But it's not that he's confused. You see, Jesus knew that to be great in his kingdom, you have to be a sacrificial servant. 
the cup and the baptism are used as symbols of suffering and wrath that Jesus would have to take upon himself in crucifixion. And that possible death that would be required of them would not square with the mentality that they were bringing. And so Jesus states that they would both take on sacrificial death indeed. The book of Acts, for example, gives us detail around the death of James. But Jesus is clear. You are to follow, but glorification is known by the Lord alone. He alone is the one that gets to glorify a person. It is by God the Father's authority that Jesus was enthroned. But notice what happens. The other disciples hear them and become indignant. Rightly so. Can you imagine their best buddy Peter? He was one of the three musketeers that are noted as Jesus' closest allies, and yet they're ready to cut him out. Why? Because of the shameless sin of self-promotion. Brothers and sisters, this is at the root of all sin. Pride. And pride then manifests itself in different ways, but pride is the root. Love of self over God and over others. That is why the direction of our Lord and King is to love God and love others as you would love yourself, thus placing yourself under the sovereign reign of God and equal with those in whom resides his image. How quickly we curl up into ourselves when presented with the possibility of glory or the fear of harm. How quickly we self-protect when convicted or malign others to raise ourselves up. How quickly we wield power over one another regardless of the cost as long as we are safe and achieve our ends. How quickly we act in ways that are self-serving, never thinking of the harm they will cause those around us. In all of these ways, we stand in stark contrast to the personality, character, and qualities that came forth from Jesus as he ministered, died, and resurrected on your behalf and mine. The shameless sin of self-promotion is in opposition to the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus notices their angst and growing bitterness towards each other and calls them together to make clear the reality of his kingdom. And it's here that we learn that, and you can write this down, the cost of discipleship is to emulate the sacrificial sovereign. The cost of discipleship is to emulate the sacrificial sovereign. Let's read from Mark 10, 42 through 45. Mark 10, 42 through 45. It says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus quickly corrects them and lets them know that those who are his repent from such a worldview. Jesus uses the example of the Gentile rulers. Not that the Jewish rulers are innocent, but he is using an example that will get their attention, much like the word terrorist might be bandied about today. The Gentile rulers lord over those in their charge, but for you, he says, it shall not be so. Instead, those who are leaders in God's kingdom 
are to be servants of those they lead. There is a single Greek word used for this idea of lording over others. And aside from this story here in Mark and its parallel in Matthew, it's only found in two places. The first is in Acts 19.16 during a story where the sons of Siva are trying to exercise demons and the man with the demons jumps on them and overpowers them to such an extent that they fled the house naked and wounded. So this idea of overpowering, harming with force comes through. The only other place it's used is in the reading that we heard from Ryan at the start of the teaching from 1 Peter 5. In that section, the Apostle Peter is calling out the leaders of the dispersed church throughout the Roman world, calling them to be a different model and an example of leadership in the church as the earthly embassy of the heavenly kingdom. Let's take a look at that scripture now. If you'll turn there with me to 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11. It says there, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is clear. True leadership is done by example through service. It is not forced. It cannot be commanded or aggressively seized. It should not come through domineering or fear-mongering. Those who do so are not part of the kingdom of God, no matter how often they claim to be aligned. Leaders within the kingdom of God are to be examples of the sacrificial heart of Jesus. Self-promotion has no place in the worldview of disciples of Christ. Instead, the worldview we need to let sink deep into our beings is this, the very last line of what we just read, to him, to Jesus alone, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. His glory, his good name, his gospel is what our lives should be dedicated to and should be what we are concerned about that we might become less so that he might become more. The cost of discipleship is to emulate the sacrificial sovereign. Now, just to be clear, that phrase, cost of discipleship, can be a bit confusing, as if we are purchasing discipleship. And that was exactly the attitude that James and John seemed to have in coming to Jesus with the request. 
But in reality, what is meant is that this is what is expected of those who enter into covenant partnership with Christ. If you are truly one of Christ's saved servants, you will automatically respond in a way that shows the same sacrificial heart that Jesus had. Look back with me at Mark 10, 43 through 45. Look what it says there. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's that title again, Son of Man. Jesus is clear, if anyone had the right to demand adoration, to demand service, and to demand that his authority be obeyed, it's the Son of Man. But even he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom was known well in the ancient world as a way to purchase the freedom of a slave or a prisoner of war. And Jesus paid the price with his own life as a slave of humanity, so that you and I might be set free. To be a disciple of the sacrificial sovereign is to use that freedom to likewise draw others out of oppression and slavery. In the spiritual realm, it means to act in whatever way possible to proclaim the gospel so that men and women might be saved from the oppression of death. And here in the physical realm, it means to act when we see oppression and injustice, when it takes place toward other image bearers of God. Unfortunately, there are so many that proclaim the title Christian, but their faith shows none of this fruit. Christianity is merely an add-on to their already self-aggrandizing way of holding power and comfort, security, and protecting their own worldview. Dear brothers and sisters, if we are not marked by humility and service, we are not disciples of Christ. James, the author of a letter of the same name, felt the same way. You are probably familiar with his statement, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? But it's interesting what precedes that sentence in the letter. Turn there with me, if you would, to James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says there, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. The topic he is discussing is the sin of partiality, the sin of lifting one person up above another because of their place in society or their wealth. But to really fulfill the royal law, the law of the kingdom, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And this means all your neighbors. We are to show mercy to all people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now we can talk all we want about being Christ's disciples, but the question is, how much of ourselves, of our own lives, our own security, our own wealth, are we willing to sacrifice for others? How willing are we to humble ourselves before Christ and before one another? In the midst of this story, Mark is trying to tell us the cost of discipleship is to emulate the sacrificial sovereign. But to finish this section, Mark gives us an example of true discipleship in one last story. Let's look there at Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Through the example of Bartimaeus, we see that, you can write this down, only in humbling ourselves are we able to truly follow Christ. Only in humbling ourselves are we able to truly follow Christ. Just as he did at the beginning of the section on discipleship in chapter 8, Mark gives us a story of a blind man to act as bookends on this section of Jesus' teachings on being his disciple. And this is so clearly stating that on our own, we are so blind to what it is to be his disciple. Mark presents Bartimaeus as a contrast to both the disciples and the rich young man of 1017. So let's quickly capture what characteristics Mark points out in this narrative. First, we see that Bartimaeus was lacking societal standing. In direct contrast to what we saw with the rich man, Bartimaeus is a poor beggar and most likely was considered cursed in some way because of his blindness. He had nothing that gave him a false sense of his own importance. I think that's something that you and I can definitely learn from. Second, we see that Bartimaeus knew his need He cries for mercy to such an extent that he is silenced by those around him, and yet that causes him to cry out even harder. And it's interesting that he uses the moniker Son of David for Jesus. Mark presents this man as knowing and believing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one that would sit on the throne of David as God's king. 
Third, we see that Bartimaeus left all that he had to follow Jesus. It says that he threw off his cloak. The word used here signifies the outer garment that everyone needed to withstand the elements. And for a beggar, it was usually what was laid on the road in front of them to collect alms. It was most likely the last possession of this man. And yet he is willing to cast aside even this. He had no riches to lose, no image to maintain. All he had was lack and need. And fourth, we see that he followed in humility. We see this in the immediacy of his response, but also in his humility in approaching Jesus. Unlike the disciples who approached Jesus as if he owed them something, Bartimaeus comes with nothing, waiting for Jesus to ask what it was that he needed. In all these ways, Bartimaeus illustrates the state of a true disciple, realizing that we lack societal standing. We have nothing to offer Jesus, that we know our need, that we have left all to follow him, and that we follow him in humility. But most of all, I am struck by how Bartimaeus, once given what he desired, did not quickly move on from his meeting with Christ, but continued following him. Others in the Gospels are given what they want, and they quickly move on. Bartimaeus shows us that only in humbling ourselves are we able to truly follow Christ. From this point, Mark will take us forward into Jerusalem in the last days of Jesus' ministry. But I believe Mark points out this last noted healing miracle at the end of the section on discipleship because he wants us to open our eyes to the fact that we cannot delude ourselves into believing we are his disciples if our attitudes emulate those of the disciples more than that of blind Bartimaeus. It may seem like I'm repeating myself over the last few weeks, but I do so only because scripture does so. To be disciples of the sacrificial sovereign, we must humble ourselves. There is no place in God's kingdom for self-centeredness, ego, pride, or self-promotion. And this is a word It's important for us to hear in general as a matter of justification and salvation. And so if you have not humbled yourself and you're listening today, you have not humbled yourself before Christ and called out in your recognition of your own need for Christ, then today is the day to do so. It's the day to cry out, have mercy upon me, a sinner. In this moment, Jesus is calling all of us that are listening to follow him in the way of sacrificial love and service, to follow him in loving God the Father and loving those around us, even our enemies and those with whom we disagree. But this is also a poignant word for us to hear, not only for our salvation, but because of its immediate application in the world that surrounds us right now. Humility in the way we encounter and relate to one another is the hallmark that needs to characterize the church. So what do we do practically? In times like these, with the world seemingly burning down around us, we wonder what each of us can even do. Some of you have even emailed me or texted me to ask me that question directly. And so here are some thoughts that I think are good application given the environment in which we find ourselves. First, We simply need to do some internal checking of our understanding of Christ. 
You see, the disciples acted the way they did because they believed they knew who Jesus was, when in fact they showed themselves to be clueless. In these last few months, I have been dumbfounded at the number of self-proclaimed Christians acting in anything other than humility, pointing fingers, blaming, complaining, arguing, debating, only concerned about self, adding to the growing fire of societal anger, all without kindness, mercy, or grace. We need to constantly be in the Word of God, not believing that we simply automatically know who Jesus is because we've read a few of the stories, but we need to constantly be immersed in the Word so it can cleanse our minds and hearts and remind us of the truth of who God is. We need to ask ourselves the question, have we formed Him into our image or are we being formed into His? The Jesus of the Bible cared about issues of righteousness and justice. The Jesus of the Bible came to free those that are oppressed and humble those that are entitled and arrogant. The Jesus of the Bible came to reconcile races, ethnicities, and languages. The Jesus of the Bible came to lead through service, humility, and peacemaking. The Jesus of the Bible thought more about others than he did about self. The Jesus of the Bible said things that should make Republicans extremely angry, and said things that should make Democrats extremely angry. The God of the Bible is often not who we think he is because we've made him into our image. Take this, for example, from Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Is this the God we follow? Or have we cast aside some of these things to make him into our own image? We need to check our understandings of Christ. Second, We need to ask ourselves the simple question of how much we serve those in our sphere of influence. Do we show that we humble ourselves to our family, our spouse, our roommates, our friends, our coworkers and boss, our neighbors? Are the people of Mission Fellowship known for being humble before their bosses and coworkers? Would they identify you as a humble servant that exudes the humility and love of Christ? If not, We need to repent and decide to serve people well this week. You may not be able to affect things across the country, but you can serve and love right where you're at. Third, very much related to humility in light of the events of this week, we need to check our sense of entitlement in the midst of so much societal outrage. We need to ask if we have taken on the mantra that this is not our problem because it happened somewhere else. Mission Fellowship, our church is primarily young, primarily middle class, and primarily white. Very few of us have any clue what it is to live a life of oppression where others look at us with disdain because of who we are. We need to own that truth and not dismiss the suffering of others simply because we've not experienced it. Racism still very much exists in this country, and if we do not purposefully eradicate it in our own homes, families, communities, and in our own language and attitudes, 
it will creep up because, as we saw earlier, it is our innate gear as sinful, broken human beings. Just because you may not see it or experience it daily yourself does not mean it does not happen. We need to be careful about how we react to this idea of racism. Preaching colorblindness is not the answer because denying differences in life experience is to dismiss and trivialize the suffering of many. Instead, recognize the differences and empathize with those that have been harmed. Put yourself in the other person's shoes as Christ did for us and figure out where and how you can have an impact in your small sphere of influence. Dear brothers and sisters, this is not an issue of political correctness. It's an issue of humility. Fourth, we need to lay down our politics, especially as we get nearer and nearer to this election season in the fall. Humility needs to be infused back into public discourse. Regardless of what side of the aisle you land on, civil discourse and mutual respect must be expectations to which we hold ourselves and our elected officials accountable. And for us to hold them accountable, we must ask ourselves if we are operating in civility and mutual respect. And when it comes time to vote for an official, I want to challenge you to elect men and women who, regardless of their political party, actually act and speak in a way that shows these characteristics. Fifth, one of the main ways we model humility as Christ followers is to see people as individuals bearing God's image, not just as part of a group. There is so much talk right now about lumping all police together, or all politicians together, or all people of a certain minority together. We must admit the nuance that there are evil police officers that should be fired and disciplined, And there are also amazing police officers who lay down their lives daily for our care and deserve support. We must admit the nuance that there are evil protesters who should be disciplined. And there are also protesters who are crying out, just like blind Bartimaeus, that they need mercy. And they are tired of having to live in fear. And they should be heard. There are evil people in any race. And in every race, there are also people doing their best to emulate Christ. Humility requires that we deal with human beings, not groups that remove their humanity so it makes it easier for them to be slandered. Sixth, we need to become quick to listen and slow to speak. We need to listen to people who have differing views than we do. And not listen through clenched teeth, but listen with the intent to understand and to love. And this is why I personally am becoming more and more convinced that Christians need to adjust the way they behave on social media. For those of you listening, can I challenge you to something? I want to challenge you to take a fast from social media for at least the next month. If not totally then at least fast from posting, tweeting, retweeting, or reposting. Recognize that when you post on social media, you are dragging the name of Jesus along with you. Make sure that what you're saying online brings him glory rather than just promotes your own opinion. 
and make sure it emanates from a place of the direction of the Holy Spirit, not just from a place of wanting your own opinion to be heard. Seventh, we all need to pray for the Lord's soon return. We need Jesus' reign so very badly. The adversary of God who loves chaos so very much is working overtime right now. The world needs to see Jesus. And if not in person, the world needs to see Jesus exampled through the humility of those that claim to follow him. And to do that well, we need to keep our eyes on the sacrificial sovereign. We need to be disciples of the sacrificial sovereign.
sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed, sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus' place. Now the curse 
curse of sin has no hold on me whom the sun sets free oh is free I 
Let's pray. Holy Lord, the word you have given us today reveals the character of humility that you call us to. In following you, we must serve each other sacrificially. We must learn how to lay down ourselves to love and be loved more fully. We submit to you in this, not just because you are the highest authority in the universe, but also because you exampled the greatest humility. You lowered yourself by becoming a man to live among us. You gave your life as a sacrifice to bring forgiveness of sin to those who have been your enemy. And by your resurrection, you have brought us new life to be transformed into your citizens of your kingdom. How great is your humility and your character to serve. Help us to emulate your humble character. Refine our love to be sincere. Help us to love our friends and enemies. For we are living in strange and dark times where we see abuse of power, rebellion to authority, and a pandemic that has affected everyone in this world. And despite this chaos and darkness, you remain a great light. You bring us hope that ignites our ability to endure. Your promised coming strengthens us to walk worthy of your calling today. Thank you for your eternal love. Thank you for your righteous and just character that brings us to a place of security and trust. We humbly submit ourselves to your authority as King and Lord. Praise be to you. Amen.